Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25. For the fullness, full, fullness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It has literally been a month of Sundays since I have occupied this pulpit, and uh, it is good to be back. I've learned two things in my time away, and that is the old axiom, out of sight, out of mind, is not true. And the axiom, absence makes the heart grow fonder, is true. It's good to be home. You have probably noticed that People are very quick to ridicule and criticize anything that is beyond their own limited understanding. Now, that's not unique to our generation. That's always been true. You can just look at the history books, and you can see how people questioned, at the very least, or sometimes outright ridiculed and criticized great technological progress that was being made in our world and even in our country. I read an article online the other day so it's got to be true, about the telephone. And after Alexander Graham Bell had invented this talking box and people had come to realize this revolutionary truth that you can actually hear the human voice over wire, one person who was a very prominent person in America at the time said, well, that's interesting, but I don't think it will ever have any practical use in the American household. You know, how, what great vision that man had. Again, that's not atypical. That's kind of the way we are, the way we're built. We brand as foolishness anything if we can't see the immediate need for it or we can't see the end result. And so it is that God has written in his word. I hope you keep your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to pick up and read the context of the text that has already been read a moment ago. Paul says in verse 18 beginning, 1 Corinthians 1, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. And so in verse 29, Paul is explaining God's reasoning behind doing all of that. And taking these oftentimes fundamental matters that are so easy to understand that we tend to overlook them. And using those to demonstrate his great power and majesty in this world in which we live. Centuries have passed and man still hasn't learned that the finite mind cannot fully understand and judge the infinite. 
And we're still wrestling with that in 2018. Long ago, God declared, and Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. God is speaking, though. And he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so God says, if you have days when it's difficult for, to fully understand me and what my will and message is to you, there's a reason for that. God doesn't always do things like a man. For the simple reason that he isn't man, he's God. And so it's difficult sometimes for us to be able to wrap our heads around what it is that God has communicated to us and what God wants for us most in life. But my message this morning is simply this. We need to be very careful that we not accuse God of foolishness simply because that his ways are sometimes beyond the sphere of our own limited understanding. That which is foolish in our sight likely is, as Paul says in this text, is what's going to demonstrate God's power and majesty. Look for God in the simple, the non-complex things of life, and you'll typically find him. Furthermore, we need to be careful that we don't cri criticize and kick the Bible because it is God's word. It sometimes speaks of that, though, which is beyond our own understanding. And Moses spoke to that in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Let's take that thought for a moment and, and just put it down in the secular world. I want to give you a few examples of, of how that this tendency to reject and, or at least to not understand great things that have taken place in the secular world. You may remember that Galileo taught that the earth was not the center of the solar system as man had previously supposed, but that the sun was. What you may not remember is that Galileo was castigated for that heretical notion. In fact, the Roman church of that day not only opposed the idea, but they threatened to excommunicate Galileo if he didn't recant his heretical notion. Under pressure, history tells us, he recanted. But privately, he still held his own ideas about the order of our solar system. And it was only during the, the year of 1980, November of 1980, that the Catholic hierarchy decided to reopen the case. We're willing to look at the possibility that the sun is, in fact, the center of our solar system. The sun was the center of the solar system when Galileo first taught it was. And it still is today. The point here is that that which man once thought of as foolishness and heresy has been accepted as unmitigated fact for all these centuries. And then there's Christopher Columbus. We read about how the Christopher Columbus jumped in his boat and sailed to try to find America in 1492. He believed the world was around, and that was one of the reasons why he was willing to go home and why he was willing to leave home. People at that time thought that the world was flat, that if you sail far enough, you would fall off the edge of the earth. But Columbus believed that the world, in fact, was around, and so that would be a motivating factor in his willingness to staff the boats put all the cargo that they needed on those boats, and then to sail off to try to find the Americas. But he was laughed to scorn a little over 500 years ago, as you may recall. Men had not yet accepted that to be fact, that the world was in fact around. And yet centuries before, here's what Isaiah wrote. Isaiah 40 and verse 22. It is he, and it's clear within the context that Isaiah is talking about God, that sits above the circle of the earth. How about that? One of the hallmarks of the inspiration of Scripture is that it speaks of things that man at that time did not know or did not accept. And, and Isaiah is writing hundreds of years before men came to commonly believe that the earth was round. 
that the earth is circular in nature. God sits above the circle of the earth. Again, that foolish piece of nonsense that filled Columbus' head and was earlier verified by God himself is now accepted as a fact of astronomical science. And then there's Robert Fulton who invented the steamboat and it was scornfully branded as Fulton's folly because men could not understand any potential benefit that would come from it. By the way, if you've read your history books about Robert Fulton, you may remember that there's a classic example of negative thinking that goes along with that story. When Robert Fulton first, the very first time that he got his steamboat and he was sitting on the bank of a river and people were invited to come and see this great revolutionary thing that was taking place. The people were standing on the bank, hundreds of them, shouting in unison, it'll never start, it'll never start. Finally, he got the steamboat going under a full head of steam, chugging down the river, and the people in unison began to shout, it'll never stop, it'll never stop. <laughs> Isn't that just like us? That's the problem, though. In our limited thinking, we just believe that something's got to be wrong with this. There's no way this could happen. And you may also remember that Watts was the one who invented the steam engine that powered Fulton's boat, and it was thought to be a contraption, according to the popular thinking, that would ultimately destroy all of mankind. But then as people came to an understanding of it, they began to realize its immense blessings and benefits, not only in steamships, but in in all phases of life as men learned to harness the energy that was made possible by pressurized steam. Secretary Seward purchased the territory of Alaska for $7.2 million. Now the part that you may not remember was this. That purchase was criticized and called Seward's Icebox. In fact, there was even a headline in the paper during that time when he, that purchase was first made. Seward's Icebox sold for $7.2 million. But you know what? Folks began to think differently about Seward's foolish purchase. When in the first year alone, the purchase price of the state of Alaska was returned in just the fish that were caught out of the Alaskan waters. And then as the course of time has passed, we look back and we began to see all of the things that have come to us from the state of Alaska, all the gold, all the silver, the furs, and the oil that have subsequently been harvested from Seward's foolish purchase. On and on we could go listing persons who were ridiculed in society because they dared to think big thoughts and to dream big dreams. There was Samuel F.B. Morris and his telegraph. There was Eli Whitney and the cotton gin. There was the Wright brothers and their silly flying contraption made out of bicycle parts. Alexander Graham Bell and his talking box, as I mentioned a moment ago, there were some who said it will never catch on. They failed to realize that now people can't walk around without one in their hands. Thomas Edison, in his foolish efforts to make a light that did not require oil to burn, Henry Ford, in his mass-produced horseless carriage, and on and on we could go. All of these inventors and others like them had these things that they had, invent had invented and cultivated and, and were branded foolish by a world that could not understand the wondrous results that would ultimately come from their work. It's a lot easier to cry foolishness than it is to accept something as possibly beneficial to mankind and then begin to explore its potential. Let's take that thought and drop it into the spiritual realm for just a moment. Because over and over again, there are things that God has done in his interaction with mankind that men have called foolish. Because they simply did not understand what God was doing or why he was doing it at the time. You may remember as you go back to the beginning of the Bible and open Genesis chapter 6 that Noah's ark 
was considered foolish by an unbelieving world. These people had in all likelihood, some say, had never even seen it rain. So the idea of building a floating house as large as the ark was, and we have the exact dimensions of it, and as, as, Mo, as Noah was working on that ark and preaching all that while, well over 100 years that it took to, to build that gopher wood condo out in his backyard, Noah only saved his own family. How's that for patience and persistence in preaching? But faith accepts the unseen when God gives his word. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 and verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. And so faith deals with the, with the realm of that which is not seen. And it doesn't mean a blind leap in the dark, but it does mean that there is evidence for that which we cannot see. And that's true in every walk of life. And so it is that we read in Hebrews 11, this time verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of the things not seen as yet, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. That old ark didn't look so foolish to an unbelieving world that were trying to stay afloat in the waters of that universal flood. It's not foolish when it comes to pass, even though most men may doubt its wisdom at the time. Romans chapter 4, or chapter 3 rather, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this, and I think it's very practical and very relevant to what we're talking about this morning. He said, because there were some who were of the opinion, the theological opinion, that if enough people basically vote against God, and, and, and this sounds very relevant in our day as, as well. If there are enough people who disbelieve God, then that will make it so. There won't be a God. And, and here's how he dealt with that subject. Again, Romans 3, verses 3 through the first part of verse 4. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Let God be true and every man a liar. If the whole world should choose to disbelieve, God still exists, God still created this universe, God still loves us, and God still sent his son to die for us. That doesn't change the facts. You can't take an opinion poll and determine what God's will is. Even though people may look at what we believe and our convictions that we hold and say, well, that's the most foolish thing I've ever heard. Remember this one from the Old Testament about Moses striking the rock in order to get water for the children of Israel? On one occasion, he was told simply to speak to the rock. But on this occasion, the Bible says in Exodus 17 in verse 6, God said to Moses, you shall smite the rock, and there shall come out water out of it that the people may drink. Now, you may remember that that one verse is the follow-up to the story about how that there wasn't enough for all of those Israelites to drink. There's maybe as many as 3 million people that are wandering in the wilderness, and they don't have enough drink, and that's a problem. And so... Moses goes to God and says, what can we do? And that was God's response. You strike the rock, water will come out of it, and you'll be able to give to everyone something to drink. Now, think about that in terms of, of our own practical ways of thinking of things. We could tap onto the city water line. That would be option number one. We might be able to dig a well deep enough to be able to give drink, to give water to all of these Israelites we might be able to find a natural source of water somewhere, hopefully a natural spring. But to strike a rock to get water is way beyond absurd to the typical human mind. You might expect to get fire from striking a rock, but not water. Most of us have never heard of anything on the outside of it that seems to be so absurd. But looking in retrospect, 
We have to admit that it's not foolish when it works, and God is the one who prescribed it. Then there's a brazen serpent raised in the midst of the Israelite camp to cure snake bite. That was utter foolishness to the unbeliever, and even to many believers in the company of God's people on that occasion. I'll tell you this, this is my own personal opinion. If I'd been bitten by a snake, as these Israelites had been, another snake is the last thing I'd want to look at. And yet that was God's prescription. And he told Moses that you need to erect this brazen serpent in the midst of the camp. And anyone who looks at it, if he's been bitten by a snake, will be able to live. That was God's promise to those people. That's Numbers 21 in verse 8 if you want the Bible for it. And when the children of Israel were dying like flies because of those fiery serpents, all of a sudden that prescription didn't seem like a very bad idea. An extremely foolish remedy for snake bite. But not really, because God was the great physician who recommended it. It did not fail to work a single time. There was a 100% recovery rate if people did what God told them to do, even though at the time it seemed very foolish. And then there's Joshua chapter 6, the circling of the walls of Jericho. It's very foolish when viewed by military experts, both before and after the fact. You don't even have to be a military expert to know that you don't go tearing down fortified walls by walking silently around it, no matter how good your intentions are. And yet, that's exactly what God told the Israelites to do. He told Joshua, now here's what I want you to do. In order to be able to get the walls of Jericho to fall down, I want you to take all the Israelites, I want you to compass the city each day for six days. On day number seven, I want you to walk around the city just like you've done the other six days, except this time I want you to do it seven times. And then I want the priests to blow up on their horns. I want the people to give a mighty shout. And God says, you have my personal guarantee, stamped by the approval of the throne room of God himself, that the walls will fall down. And you know what? That is exactly what happened. And if you don't believe that or if you don't remember the details, go back and reread Joshua chapter 6. It is an absolutely fascinating story of God's power. And yet in that day and even in our day, people look at that story and go, that's the very reason why I don't believe in God, because nobody could do that. We're talking about God here. By his very nature, is a supernatural being, and so he can do supernatural things. These are called miracles when God has chosen to suspend natural law. And rather than question, denounce, or criticize, perhaps what we need to be doing is looking very carefully at these accounts and saying, is this possible? Could a God who could speak the universe into existence actually do these things? Folks, I want to remind you, it's not foolish when it works. Reducing an army of 32,000 men down to only 300 sounds foolish to anyone who's had any military experience or knowledge. But that's precisely what God told Gideon to do in Judges chapter 7. And by the way, Gideon is not the man who went around to all the motels leaving Bibles. This is a different Gideon. And Gideon was told by God, you've got too many men. When you win, not if, when you win this battle, I want everyone to know that it was done by the power of God and not through military might. Well, we know that there's might and strength in numbers. And so taking 32,000, paring that down to only 300, sounds like abject foolishness. Did it work? The Bible says they utterly defeated an army so large it was impossible to count the men who comprised it. Need I remind you at this point, it's not foolish when it works. Naaman dipping seven times in the Jordan River seems foolish. And the Bible says in 2 Kings 5, at the time, it seemed very foolish to Naaman himself. His first reaction when he heard that recommendation through the prophet of God was, he got angry. 
He spun away in a rage. He had come to be healed, not to have his intelligence impugned. God said through the prophet, I want you to go down to the old muddy Jordan River and dip seven times, and when you do that, your otherwise incurable disease of leprosy will be healed. Well, I'll tell you what. When he finally did, after the insistence and advice of some, specifically a servant of his, when he finally did what God had prescribed and decreed, the Bible says he was cleansed of his leprosy and his flesh was made like that of a little child. Why not some other river that was cleaner and, and purer than the Jordan, the old muddy Jordan River, because God said the Jordan River. And I want you to do it exactly the way that I prescribed. The foolishness of God made the whole thing work, so it wasn't at all foolish. And then finally, one more Bible example is found in John chapter 9. Washing in the pool of Siloam to give sight to a person born blind sounds foolish to anyone that would dare try it today. I'll guarantee you, if you got an appointment, if all of a sudden you woke up and you had been robbed of your vision, and you said, I've got to go see an eye specialist, and you got an appointment, someone drove you there, you're sitting to be examined, and the eye specialist tells you with all of his diplomas mounted on the wall and posted for anyone who can see to peruse, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to spit in your eye, and then I want you to go jump in a lake. In all likelihood, not only would you call the Better Business Bureau, but you would stomp out and say, this is the craziest guy or woman that I have ever met in my life. But you may remember that God made it work through his divine power, and it wasn't at all foolish. It worked exactly the way God had prescribed it. That's John 9, verses 1 through 7, if you want to read that fascinating story, because as you know by now, it's not foolish when it works. Let's then apply these principles to our own lives, and then the lesson will be yours. From the beginning of the Christian dispensation, the preaching of the gospel has been considered foolish to those who disbelieve. You may remember a moment ago when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that full context, that that's exactly what Paul said in verse 25. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save them that believe. That still is true. 2,000 years later. There are still people who hear about or hear the message of the gospel and say, that's foolish. The very idea that someone hung on a cross, that he rose from the dead on the third day, and that you're spending your whole life trying to serve this Messiah, and that, that he gives meaning to your life, and that you live in, in faith on a daily basis in this person who did all of these foolish things, people are still making that claim. But remember, God did not consult man about the matter when he came up with a scheme of redemption, the plan of salvation. He set forth his terms of salvation, and he, not man, is the one who authored salvation. That's the first reminder. Salvation by faith is foolish to the universalist who contends that everybody's going to be saved even if they don't believe in the Christ. But Jesus said, if you believe not that I am he, you'll die in your sins. John 8 verse 24. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is God's power to save them that believe. Romans 1 16. But he held forth no promise to those who do not believe. In fact, we're told in Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. So if it seems foolish to make salvation dependent upon a person's faith, remember that God is the one who ordered it. Jesus was not speaking foolishly in his promise. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, verse 16. If you think that's foolishness, just remember that it's God's plan and it always works. There is a 100% recovery rate for those who take his prescription. 
The preaching of repentance is foolish to those who don't believe, but God's word has not faltered. When some recited the tragic death of some, Jesus said this in Luke 13, verse 3, I tell you, but except you repent, you shall in all like manner perish. What he didn't tell them on that occasion was that you're perishing, you're dying is going to be different from theirs. They died physically, you're going to be dying spiritually if you don't repent. Change your ways and turn and begin to follow me and serve God. It was our Lord who charged that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning in Jerusalem, Luke chapter 24 and verse 47 says. It was through the Holy Spirit and through the mouth of Peter that on the day of Pentecost, repentance was first openly preached on that day. And it was emphasized as being absolutely necessary to salvation. The people wanted to know what to do. You may remember this. They were touched in their hearts, verse 37 of Acts 2. Verse 38, Peter's response to their question, what do we do? How do we rectify this situation? We are convinced that we're the ones responsible for killing the Messiah and nailing him to the tree. And Peter's response was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through that Holy Spirit and through Peter, God's word was made known to those people. How did they respond to that? Well, they didn't consider it all foolish. Verse 41 says, those that gladly received the word were baptized. They did exactly what Peter said. They didn't say, I can see absolutely no connection between being immersed in water and the remission of my sins. But God is the one who prescribed it. So we don't always have to see the connection. You may remember how important that is. In fact, that baptism for the remission of sins has always been considered foolish not by unbelievers and, and in fact to a lot of people who purport to be believers. And I can fully understand why. I've said before and I say again, if the Lord had allowed me to state the terms of salvation, I would have left baptism out. I wouldn't have included it because I wouldn't want to have to go around explaining to people for the rest of my life what the connection is between baptism and the remission of our sins. But I'm telling you, God did. He put it in, he left it in, and he commands that we teach and preach and believe it and obey it. He said, he that believes and baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. Who am I to argue with that point? Foolishness? Well, again, they didn't think so. Those that gladly receive the word, again, were baptized. Acts 2.41 says, you know, that's a pattern that's shown in gospel obedience. Over in Acts 8, verse 12, we have this account. But when they believed Philip preaching the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Well, that seems foolish to me. Well, get over it. Because that's what God said do. And that's what the apostles preached. And that's what we believe and practice to this day. Saul didn't think it foolishness. When Ananias came to him in Acts twenty two sixteen and said, Why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That same Saul, later also known as the Apostle Paul, would write Romans 6, 3, and 4 and explain the spiritual significance of this faith-responsive baptism. When he would say, do you not know that as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? You see, it is in the act of baptism, Paul explains, where we contact the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. When we're baptized, we are actually in a spiritual, symbolic way reenacting Christ on death, burial, and resurrection. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, he said we will be raised from that watery grave to walk in a newness of life. 
He may not have understood it when Ananias first commanded it, but by the time he wrote Romans chapter 6, he's got a firm grasp on what some consider to be the foolishness of God. Baptism for or unto the remission of sins is not foolishness because God ordained it in his divine purpose. It's his plan. And who are we to argue the point? You know, there are all kinds of things that God has arranged in his creation that I cannot fully comprehend, but I still accept them. I seek to learn of their workings and their benefits. David Lipscomb, I believe, is the one who said, there are some things in the Bible that are not essential to salvation that I cannot understand. Well, let me join that group. But then he went on to say, but more important, there are many things that I cannot misunderstand. And those are the things that are going to be called into judgment when you and I stand before God. I tell you what, folks, I can't understand how a black cow can eat green grass and give white milk that can in turn be churned into yellow butter, but I still thank God for cows, don't you? I'm grateful that God has arranged his creation the way he has arranged it. I don't know everything there is to know about the principles of electricity, but I still avail myself of its use. I don't turn, I fail to turn on a light simply because I don't understand how that works. Explain to me one more time about AC and DC currents. No, just flip the switch. That's all you got to know. And if I know what side my spiritual bread is buttered on, I'll appropriate the spiritual blessings of God through Christ Jesus. And I will not accuse God of foolishness simply because my limited understanding cannot comprehend it all. God reveals to me that which I must believe and accept in order to be blessed. And I'm just going to have to swallow my own human pride and come to accept that in faith. I'm wondering this morning, do you have that kind of faith? Are you, are you really standing on the promises or are you just sitting on the premises? Are you willing to kneel at the foot of the cross and to obey God's plan without question and without reservation? If so, then we bid you come while we stand, while we sing.